Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, invites you to be the informed patient with the podcast that features experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Lower back pain is one of the most common reasons for people to miss work or to see a doctor. Today, I'm talking about lower back pain with Dr. Hirok Kang. He's an assistant professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Upstate, and he specializes in pain and chronic pain management. Welcome to The Informed Patient, Dr. Kang. Thank you for having me on board, Amber. Can we begin with a bit of an anatomy lesson? I'm curious about the structures in the back that are involved in lower back pain. Absolutely. So there's uh, in total uh, 24 uh, what they call vertebral bodies in the spine. There's about seven in the neck, 12 kind of in your thoracic area where your ribs are, and there's five lumbar vertebral bodies. Um, they are usually the largest in size. And what I try to explain to patients is if you imagine a stack of cylinders, the one kind of at the lowest or what we would in medically would say inferior are the ones bearing the most weight and they're generally the largest in size. So they're stacked. What, what, exactly. what hold them together? So there's a lot of ligaments in place. Think of it as a, as a stack of cylinders in between are called discs and they're kind of like the shock absorbers. There's joints, two on each side of the cylinder that connects next on each end. So that allows you to bend forward, bend back, rotate that kind of activities. And then there's also ligaments that kind of, kind of put everything in place. So are they attached to muscles? They're attached to muscle that at every uh, level. And then in addition to that, there's actually nerves that come out at each level as well. I'm curious about the nerves. Are they inside the bone or how, where, do, where do they lay? That gets a little complicated. There are what's called sinovertebral nerves that are actually in the bone itself and outside of each disc. There's also nerves that come out at each level. So the spinal cord, I try to uh, explain as kind of like, you know how the power goes into your house and it goes into that kind of circuit breaker and at every level it kind of branches off to each individual outlet. Those are what I would call the major nerves that kind of innervate like your hands and your feet and your, and your knees and that kind of big joints. And then you have smaller nerves that actually innervate, you know, various aspects of that, just like in your lower back or, or even in like the disc and the, um, the uh, lumbar vertebral body itself. So when we have back pain, have we done something to injure the bone or have we pulled muscles or have we done something to the nerves? Like, where does the pain come from? That's a great question. And to be quite honest, scientifically, we're still trying to figure this all out. It's a very complex question. What I'm trying to do is I try to figure out kind of what a person had been doing right before, if it's generally like a muscle sprain or ligament strain, you know, you have this pain, but you also have tenderness. And so if you touch it, it hurts. Kind of like a bruise or something kind of punched your arm. Nerve pain's a little bit different. You know, a lot of times you can have compression of a specific nerve. And a lot of times patients will say, it feels like this shooting electric going down to my foot. And that is more indicative of a nerve pain. That's not necessarily tender. I try to differentiate between pain and tenderness. Tenderness would be if I touched you and it hurt, uh, whereas you can still have pain without the tenderness. I've heard of herniated discs, but I'm not really sure what those are or how important they are. Do you need to see a doctor if you have herniated a disc? 
It really depends. You know, a lot of times herniated discs can resolve on its own. Uh, clinically, you should see improvement on average. There's some studies that say six weeks, uh, up to nine months. It can sometimes take for a herniated disc to kind of reabsorb itself. I try to explain herniated disc as kind of like a jelly donut. And the thing is, when you squeeze a jelly donut and that um, the jelly kind of bursts back, that in itself can be irritating to your spine and your spine nerves. There's actually a study that was done in the 1970s that looked at disc pressures, and they kind of looked at it in different positions. Actually, it's very interesting. And they actually found that bending forward and rotating could increase the disc pressure four times or 400% of what you'd normally experience if you're standing up straight. So if I'm standing up straight, let's say my discs are experiencing, let's say, 100% of that pressure. If I bend forward and rotate, it's going to be about four times that. And so a lot of times, usually my patients say they were, you know, reaching for something or lifting something farther away and twisting and they experience this sharp pain that's going down their back. I would usually tell them that a lot of times that can resolve. If they're experiencing any weakness or abnormal sensation, at that point, I would say maybe you should, you know, look to see a doctor first and maybe get checked out. Is herniated disc the same thing as a slipped disc? Yes, that can be interchangeable. With the disc, there's actually, interesting enough, there's different terminology that radiologists use. You know, it depends on the size of the disc that's protruding out back. You also have to realize, you know, the body is a 3D structure. So a herniated disc not only can push back, but when it pushes back, it can actually push up and down as well. So if you squeeze, you know, like like I said, with the jelly donut, you know, it's not going back in one plane. It's, it's going in a lot of different places as well. And so a lot of times an MRI is great for actually figuring how much of that is happening. So when you initially injure yourself, that's an acute injury or acute pain. When does acute pain turn into or become chronic pain? Usually acute pain is defined as three weeks. I think medically we've kind of put these lines in the sand and chronic pain is defined as three months. So subacute pain will be in between that. So it's less than three weeks is acute pain. Three weeks to three months is subacute. And then after three months is chronic pain. Obviously for a patient, you know, these terms don't really uh, mean a lot to them. You know, they're in pain, they're in a lot of pain and they want to figure out, you know, what I can do to help them. But that's kind of where we draw the line and try to figure out, you know, how we can help. You were telling us all the different ways that patients could describe the pain that they're experiencing, and it seems, you know, all across the board. Does lower back pain ever spread into other areas of the body? Absolutely, it can. You know, the, the challenge is the spine is connected to all other joints, right? All, all the joints are connected to the spine. The spine is connected to all other joints in the body as well, right? And so a lot of times we consider this what's called a kinetic chain. And so patients will generally have some kind of knee pain, and so their gait is altered, and then they'll start to have hip pain, and then they'll start to have back pain. And so sometimes it can be kind of challenging. It's almost like a Sherlock Holmes approach where you actually have to kind of backtrack of when the pain started and to figure out what's causing this. But yes, a lot of times we can have back pain that spreads as well. What we call that is referred pain. You may have pain in the lower back, but then it's also spreading to kind of the uh, back of your legs, which is different actually than radiating pain, which is back pain that goes down to the right foot. So it, it can be very challenging for patients because they're having pain kind of all over and it's very hard for them to differentiate, you know, where this pain is coming from. What happens if a person is in pain and they, it, it, it doesn't get treated? They don't seek treatment. They don't get any care for it. Will the pain resolve on its own or will the pain just keep getting worse? That's one of the challenges with chronic pain. You know, a lot of times there's different methods of treating pain, whether it's medications or injections or 
conservative management, right? But a lot of times when you have long going, untreated pain, what you that generally have is a centralization of pain. And what that means is pain is not only what is happening, but also your perception of pain. And so a lot of times when my patients have this chronic low back pain, they're very guarded with their movements. They can be very anxious and depressed. And so that kind of takes what is a pain, let's say a six out of 10 into a nine out of 10. And so now, you know, a lot of times the challenge is how do we uh, treat the pain and also treat the perception of pain, which is very real. People are feeling this pain. It's not something made up in their head. Pain is very challenging in that way. So it is important to treat it. Absolutely. So let's talk about what causes lower back pain. How often do you see people with congenital diseases? I actually don't see a lot of patients with congenital diseases where, where I am at. What I see is someone has a herniated disc that happened all of a sudden, whether they were lifting something heavy, or a lot of times I see more chronic neck and back pain. Over time, there can be degenerative changes just as patients age, unfortunately. So arthritis, inflammatory diseases, things like that? Exactly, exactly. And one of the challenges as patients get older is, you know, the discs that act as a shock absorber between those lumbar vertebral bodies, which are kind of like the stacks of cylinders, they basically uh, lose the fluid. So your jelly donut actually becomes just a donut and loses that jelly. And so what happens is it actually puts more pressure on the joints that are between uh, the lumbar vertebral bodies. And so that can lead to arthritis. And the challenge with arthritis is once you have bone on bone, ironically, that actually creates more bone, what are called osteophytes. And kind of similar to the knee and the shoulder and things like that, you just, or the hip, you just have this narrowing. And that in itself can be very painful. Do you ever find that the back pain is actually because of a problem somewhere else in the body? I do. I do. Usually I see it in hip pain, uh, which is actually patients, when they say hip, they, they sometimes get confused because they think of their fashion hips at the waist, but hip pain is actually more groin pain, actually. And then also sometimes with knee pain as well. And a lot of times it's because they're just, because they're painful on one side, they're shifting their weight to the other side. And so now their back is is actually taking, you know, uh, you know, a bit more load there. And so therefore I can definitely see where their pain is coming from. Let's talk about risk factors for developing low back pain. Why is it that back pain becomes more common as we get older? You know, unfortunately, a lot of it is patients are getting older. They've had a long history of maybe treating their body a little bit more aggressively. They put on a little bit of weight. Maybe they're smoking and drinking alcohol. And so a lot of these can have a detrimental factor for low back pain. Maybe their work is very sedentary and they're not moving around as much. With back pain, we're kind of focused on keeping that core strong. And so especially in central New York, there's a big risk factor, especially for females for osteoporosis. And a lot of times that can lead to compression fractures, uh, which is at that thoracic lumbar junction. The th thoracic is kind of where your ribs are in your lower back. And, and the reason why that is, is because the thoracic area is very stiff and the lower back is very flexible. And so generally you have a compression fracture in that stiffness and the kind of flexible portion. A lot of times we'll see this uh, and it's very unfortunate because these patients, you know, we are the sunny state of Syracuse. And so, you know, they'll have their bone structures are not the greatest and then they'll have some kind of fall. And then that can lead to compression fracture, which can lead to, um, a lot of significant mid-back and also low-back pain as well. 
So that's an issue for women in central New York because we don't have the sunshine like Florida or California. Exactly. We're just at risk for more osteoporosis, which you know, makes your bone brittle, unfortunately. Because we need that vitamin D. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's a prescription for a flight to Florida, actually. Okay. Well, let me ask you about a person's fitness level. Does being active increase or decrease your risk of developing lower back pain? It, it can definitely increase it if you're at that kind of extreme level. But for most patients, it definitely decreases your risk, especially if you're flexible, you're preserving what's called your range of motion with your back and your legs, and you're focused on that core strengthening. Increasing fitness level is, is helpful in a lot of aspects. And what about weight? Weight, unfortunately, isn't the greatest for low back pain. There's a lot of more research actually for knee pain. If you lose a lot of weight, you can actually decrease your uh, knee pain and your hip pain and your lower back pain as well. And so I always tell patients that it's really beneficial for them. Let's say they can try physical therapy or even just looking at the local Y or the local gym to, you know, kind of, you know, get a, get a better handle on that. Do genetics play a role? If, if you had parents that, you know, struggled with back pain, are you more likely to have that yourself? I honestly haven't seen a lot of research in that. Anecdotally, I've had a lot of patients that have kind of told me about their parents' low back pain and neck pain, and, and it's kind of, kind of correlates to what they're seeing. But the science is a little bit mixed on that right now. Can people do anything to protect themselves if they have a job, say, that requires heavy lifting? Absolutely. And so I would say for if you're, if you're working a job that's having heavy lifting, you really need to be able to kind of lift weights close to your body. And so what I explain to people is if you imagine your back is kind of like, you know, at a seesaw where your back is like that, uh, a crux where all the weight is on, is you move further away, you actually need less weight, right? And so the idea is if you're doing any heavy lifting, it has to be close to you because the further away um, you're moving away from your body, then it's actually putting a lot more leverage basically on your lower back. And so I would recommend patients squat and kind of lift close to your body. And that's that's something that they can protect themselves. That's more in reference to adults, but I'm thinking of little kids with backpacks, which some of those backpacks can be pretty heavy. Are they setting themselves up for problems as an adult? I haven't seen a lot of studies in that uh, recently, but to me, it makes a lot of sense that if you're putting a lot of weight on a developing spine, then it, it's probably not a great idea, actually. Let me ask you about mental health. Does that have an effect on back pain? Absolutely. It's, you know, patients want to get better. I think that that is a struggle. They're trying to figure out ways and they're trying to get out of this process where they have this back pain. And a lot of times, you know, maybe their coping mechanism is to smoke or to drink or to eat. And so therefore they're putting on weight or they're using you know, these crutches. And so a lot of times they are end up being depressed and anxious and they're very stressed out. And so it kind of creates this cycle. And I feel like as providers don't really talk enough of how we can help mental health first, and then that can also help with their back pain. You're listening to Upstate's The Informed Patient Podcast with your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Dr. Hirok Kang. He's an assistant professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Upstate, specializing in pain and chronic pain management. What do you do for someone who comes to you complaining of lower back pain? What, what's involved in the diagnosis? 
I try to get a first good solid history. My role is to try to figure out where this pain is coming from, how this pain occurred, where it's going. I try to correlate to a specific dermatome map or if it's, let's say, a radiculopathy. A lot of times I'll start with a lumbar x-ray before I progress with an MRI. I'll usually prescribe them like home exercise program or physical therapy. If it's a certain nerve distribution that I'm suspecting, I'll, I'll order what's called an EMG, a nerve conduction study. It's kind of an uncomfortable exam, but it really tries to isolate what specific nerve could be involved. Well, starting with acute pain, let's talk about how back pain is treated. If someone comes in with acute back pain and you are able to sort of determine what you think is the cause, how do you begin treatment? We're kind of at this phase now, we're moving away from bed rest, to be quite honest. A lot of times, you know, if it's acute back pain, we'll start with kind of the rice, you know, with the rest, ice, compression, elevation. Back pain is kind of hard to elevate, to be quite honest. Um, and rest is relative rest. It's not you're actually in bed. We're also trying to move away from back braces as well, unless you have a specific issue like a compression fracture. A lot of the recent literature has shown that back braces can kind of lead to weakness in the back. And that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to strengthen those back and core muscles, like the abdomen. We'll also start with some basic Tylenol, ibuprofen, Proxen, or uh, I can also prescribe what's called meloxicam, which is a long-acting uh, NSAID. Now, what about, I guess, with the rice, ice is part of it. Does heat ever get used? Do you switch over to heat at some point? Usually I will start with ice because um, the thought process of any kind of acute process is that you have an inflammatory process. And so ice is supposed to kind of calm that down. And so heat is generally not something that will help in an acute phase. In a chronic phase, to be quite honest, I've had a lot of patients that say heat really helps. And so I always trust what the patient is telling me and try to go by with what works with them. And so a lot of my visit with a patient is trying to figure out what they've tried before and what else they haven't tried. And so um, and he can definitely be helpful. So for people who have chronic low back pain, let's talk about what their options are for treatment. So these are people that have had pain for more than three months, generally? Yeah, I always tell my patients that there's generally, with myself or any other provider, there's five things you can relate to. One, you can do nothing and you can live with it, which is probably what a lot of patients have done. Two, you can try conservative measures such as like acupuncture, chiropractor, physical therapy, home exercise program. Three, you can try medications. And I try to explain to them medications do have side effects and I can list those specific ones for the patients. Four, you can try injections and understanding that there's always risk and complication with any kind of intervention. And five, you can do surgery, understanding the risks and possible complications. But surgery would be something I would actually refer them out to. So you actually go over those five options with the individual because there's got to be pros and cons for each of those, right? Absolutely. You know, I try to go through those five options mainly because I want to also figure out like what they've tried. A lot of times they've said they've tried chiropractor or tried PT, but they haven't tried acupuncture or they've tried some medications. Maybe they haven't tried them all. And so it's, it's, it's kind of my role to figure out what they haven't tried and, and see if, if it's worth it. Have you seen people uh, where conservative measures like acupuncture or physical therapy or the chiropractor, have those been effective? Do you have patients that have gotten relief through conservative measures? Absolutely. You know, a lot of times herniated discs get better with conservative management. And I would argue that a lot of times they get better without any 
you know, providers being involved. And so I always recommend to my patients, you don't have to see me. You don't have to see a physical therapist. You don't have to see a chiropractor. You know, you could sign up for the why and use the therapy pool for the next four weeks and see if that will help. You know, if they're not in severe debilitating pain, they're not having neurological symptoms, weakness, that kind of, you know, strange sensation down their leg. They're not having bowel bladder issues that I absolutely encourage patients to, to do that. And, you know, a lot of them actually, they get better. And it's a win for the patient and for myself, even though I don't see them as much as I want to. It's, you know, I, I consider that a win. In terms of medications, are there medications that can relieve pain that are not opioids that a person won't be at risk of becoming dependent on? Absolutely. There's a few medications. We call them neuropathic pain medications. The big one is probably what a lot of people have heard of, gabapentin. Not everyone finds success for these, but a lot of studies show that an effective dose of gabapentin, let's say, is 1,200 to 800. And, you know, a lot of literature shows it can reduce pain by 30 to 50%. And I try to be upfront with patients and saying, hey, if this medication works for you and we're able to get up to that level, you know, this is kind of what I would expect as a win. And if that's acceptable to you, then I think, you know, we can definitely try it. And so I think managing patients' expectations on what they can expect and what the side effects are, such as nausea, dizziness, fatigue, abdominal pain, you know, if they're able to kind of weigh the pros and the cons, I think it's definitely a, a good option for a lot of patients. You mentioned injections, and I wanted to learn more about that. Is is that a one-time thing where you get an injection of something and that takes it away for good? So unfortunately, injections do have a limitation on the duration. Right? And so a lot of times what I try to determine is whether this is a therapeutic or a diagnostic injection. And a lot of injections I do is for the spine, neck, and the lower back. And a diagnostic injection is one where I just use an anesthetic. It's not a steroid. It's really if the patient is planning for surgery. And usually I do it in coordination with like orthospine or neurosurgery. And that's really to confirm the surgical level that they're having the surgery. A therapeutic injection, that's where I'm just using a mixture of anesthetics, like a lidocaine or bupivacaine and a steroid. And that is for patients with uh, severe chronic pain that's kind of radiating down their legs. Let's say it doesn't have to go right down their legs. You know, a good block can be on average, you know, three to four months. And so at that point, my question to the patient is, we can try to see if it works for you. We can try to do a mixture of the injection and the medication to, to try to elongate that. But it will most likely, if you have chronic pain, be something you may need on, on a routine basis. And, you know, I try to have a ongoing conversation with the patient about that. I also offer that physical therapy as well, so they can try to figure out what, if there's any stretches that they, they can do to kind of prevent the pain. But unfortunately, there is no one injection that's going to last forever. Well, if a person is a candidate for surgery and they go and they have surgery, will they ultimately come back to see you or not necessarily? You know, not necessarily, you know, we have some great surgeons here at Upstate, not only the neurosurgical department here, but at the orthospine surgeons I work with, Dr. Talarico, Dr. Lavelle, and Dr. Sun, they're excellent. You know, there are some patients, unfortunately, do come back after surgery with some pain. Chronic pain is very tricky to treat, but there is a lot of patients that get a lot better and I don't see them afterwards. And I think that's, that's a win for everyone involved. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. Lower back pain is just so prevalent and you hear about people that struggle with it, but you do have patients that you've seen who've been able to eliminate the pain and get on with their life. Is that right? Absolutely. And it's, it's great. I had a woman last week talk about how she's been able to go grocery shopping without pain and 
she said she didn't realize she could do something simple like that and have no pain. Uh, she was amazed. She was walking up and down the aisles, and I, um, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here serving the patients of Central New York and and try to add value to their lives in some meaningful manner. Dr. Kang, thank you so much for making time for this interview. You're very welcome. My guest has been Dr. Hirok Kang. He specializes in pain and chronic pain management at Upstate, where he's an assistant professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation. The Informed Patient is a podcast covering health, science, and medicine, brought to you by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and produced by Jim Howe. Find our archive of previous episodes at upstate.edu slash inform. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.